So we sing, there is joy in the house of the Lord because Jesus Christ is our living hope. And that's why we'll say something as risky as I surrender all. And that is exactly what we're going to discover in Matthew chapter 2 today as we spend some time with those famous Christmas figures, the wise men. And I know when we think of the wise men, there's all these bits and pieces that we think we know, and then now we know that we don't know, and so now the cool thing is to point out all the things we don't really know. <laughs> like, how many were there? Well, maybe it was three, or maybe it was two, or maybe it was 40, who knows. Well, they're from the east. Where is that? Well, it's east of Jerusalem. That's all we really know. <laughs> and uh, they are not supposed to be at the manger scene, right? Like, that's a big deal. But guess what? I'm not setting up two Christmas displays in my house, so I'm just putting the wise men at the manger scene. I know it doesn't quite fit. But like, you know, we can get kind of lost on some of these details. But Matthew, as he tells this story, is trying to tell us the story of real people who found out that God was laying out the course for who this king, this Messiah, was going to be, and they decided to investigate. And in fact, as we think about their story, it really begins long before they become part of it. Because before the kings show up with their gifts to this baby, hundreds of years earlier and thousands of years earlier, God is making promises, prophecies, and predictions to lay out the course for who that king will be. And as we've gone through this series, we've been kind of using this idea of golf balls and a hole in one to represent what those prophecies and promises are. Because it's not as if God said a hundred things that would be cool if they were true of the Messiah. And as, as long as he hits about like a B plus, 85, 88 of them, we're good to go. No, there are hundreds of things in the Old Testament and Messiah has to nail every single last one. So for the weeks you've seen Chad, you know, pouring golf balls all over the stage, if Jesus doesn't pick up every single one of them, he's not the Messiah. Because God wants his people to know clearly, specifically, and with full confidence, the king is here. And so 700 years before he was born, there was a prophet named Micah. Now Micah would have been around the same time as Isaiah when God's people are completely off track and yet he's still making promises, prophecies, and predictions. And this is what Micah wrote about the birth of the coming king. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. So, so Bethlehem is one of the smallest towns in the county, basically, of Ephrathah in the land of Judah. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now that means that the one who is coming has existed from eternity past. That he has already had comings and goings from everlasting past, from of old. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock. This king will be like a good shepherd. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. So you see, just in these few verses, really multiple things that God is laying out, that this king has existed from eternity past, and he will last for eternity future, which only describes God, and yet somewhere in the middle of that, there's a birth. 
well, how is God of eternity past and eternity future going to be born? And yet we saw just last week how the virgin was with child and Mary gave birth to Jesus. And so now you fast forward 700 years and we find these wise men. Only they're not talking about Micah. They have something a little bit different in mind as they are looking for evidence of a king. And so as we pick up Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, look at how he begins. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, right away, Matthew is indicating for his Jewish audience, hey, 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 after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So if you know your Old Testament, you tune in. Okay, born in Bethlehem. We got that one. But notice, the other characters who show up here are Gentiles. So right at the birth of Jesus, both Jewish and non-Jewish, this is for the entire world. And it says that they saw a star. Now, there is a lot that could be said about what exactly this star is, and we won't spend all of our time on it today, because for me, an issue like this is if there's no good explanation, then we have a problem. If there are multiple good explanations, I might not be able to nail down exactly what's going on, but I don't have to throw it out. Because you, will, you can watch videos, you can read articles, you can read books. You know, some people think that this is an alignment of a number of different constellations that would then shine especially brightly that you can track back because we know how planets and stars and things have moved in history to like, hey, it was just the right moment, just when the Bible says in just the right place that this would look brighter than ever before. And it's like Virgo, hey, that's the virgin, that would make sense. Leo, well, that could be the Lion of Judah, that makes sense. And honestly, it's pretty compelling other people think that because of some of the language later in the passage about how it went ahead of them and came to the house and then stood over the child, that maybe it's actually something God created within the atmosphere so that they could see it moving and it could pinpoint a specific place. Whatever it is, here's what's important about it. God is initiating something for these wise men. We don't know if they had an Old Testament. Doesn't sound like they did. They don't seem to know what Old Testament prophets said. And yet, God is giving them a piece of evidence that something extraordinary is happening that they should look into. And so we get this word. This, this word wise men comes from the Greek magoi. So that's how we know there's more than one because that's a plural word. And we don't know if there's two or 40 or 400. You know, we typically get the idea of three because of the three gifts they had, but we don't really know. But what we do know, because this word is used a number of different ways, but most commonly it is this idea of a wise, educated person, and specifically for these, that they were astrologers. Now, that's a little different than you might think of astrology today. This is not like if, if my sign is up there and my star is moving, like I'm going to get that job and I'm going to feel happy today. <laughs> like it's not that. Uh, that, that connects to an older idea that there is something written in the stars, that there is something, that, that there is a God who laid all this stuff out and he's trying to tell us something through creation itself. So that if we investigate creation, we'll begin to understand something of what God is telling us. 
And that's important because when you look at a passage like this, you want to ask the what, well, a strange star, the so what, right? Strange star, like whatever, I got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, but this strange star seems to point to the king. Well, so what about a strange star? Oh, this is for the king. So you want to ask the what, the so what, and the now what. If that star is really there, if it really points to a king, then what are these wise men going to do about it? And so it's intriguing to watch their journey because these guys were highly educated. And so as we think about them riding their camels over the desert, coming to see Jesus... We can often think of them as, as like mystics, you know, and they're, they're ancient and they're from antiquity. And so who, who knows who they really are and what kind of strange ideas they had and how prone to voodoo magic they might be. But really what this is trying to communicate with us is, is uh, Alistair Begg actually refers to them as theological scientists. That they believed that by studying creation, that by looking at the stars, they could discover greater truth about who God is. And so this piece of evidence that God lays before them causes them to begin their investigation. And and I think that's really the invitation that that Matthew is offering us here. That your education and your expectation helps you to investigate the extraordinary. Just like these wise men. That when they see a star, they don't just think it's strange. They don't just think it's weird and then leave it behind. They say, this must mean something. And they use their expertise. They, they use their experience, their skill, and their education to dig in further. And I love this picture of them. Because it, it's so easy to get the idea that there's like science over here. And then there's like spiritual stuff over here. And never the twain shall meet. Because you know how it is with science and religion. But the Bible never paints that picture. The Bible paints the picture that God created all of this science that we see. And all through history you see Christ-focused scientists make incredible breakthroughs because they believe that God has built things this way. And so rather than turn off your scientific brain, I know you guys are really smart about stars, but just don't worry about that right now. I have some spiritual stuff for you. Instead, God is engaging their education engaging their logic and their reasoning and their investigation. And it reminds me of my friend Scott because Scott was one of these guys, is one of these guys, who like his whole life he's a hard worker and it always paid off. So like in school, in sports, and then ultimately in business. So he's one of these guys like in his early 30s that's practically running the company already. And so one day he's, he's standing in front of the board of the company and they're talking about some different stock options and Scott, we think you should do this. And ultimately Scott decided, eh, I don't think I want to do that. And they let him go. And he was completely shocked because there, there was no like indiscretion. He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't like against the company or didn't believe in it anymore. There's just background details that for the first time in his life, the trajectory, trajectory was not going up anymore. And so life kind of crashed down and You know, he was stressed, he was overwhelmed, he was worried about the future, and he was not a person of faith. Did not believe in Christ, did not spend any time with God, was not interested in any of that. Just interested in pursuing the the career and, and making the most of himself. But when he hit this crisis moment, well, he started networking everywhere he could. He says, you know, he literally talked to like over a hundred different people. And one of the things that he discovered as he went through that process was that the people he met with 
who said that faith in God was a core value in their life were different than everybody else. They weren't just interested in connections and business and you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. They seemed to genuinely care about him. To genuinely care about his family, his wife, his kids. They would say things like, hey, last time we met, you, were, you said this about your wife. I've been praying about that. How is that going? And so slowly he became kind of compelled about what is it about God that makes these people different. So one day, one of those people invited him. Hey, Scott, I got a couple of guys that are going to be doing a, a study. We're just we're reading the book of John out of the Bible and kind of letting that show us, like, you know, who Jesus is and, and kind of what he says about himself. I think you should join us. Well, Scott, I love how he tells this because in his head, he's like, I don't think I should. <laughs> but that would be a good chance for more networking if there's going to be other guys there. So, okay, fine, I'll come a couple times. So he shows up, like, with no interest whatsoever to this Bible study in the book of John. But as they start reading, he starts applying his education, his expertise, his intellect. And as they go through the book, becomes convinced that Jesus really is who he says he is. That he really did what he said he did. That he said things you never would have guessed until you actually read it on the page. And it ended up changing Scott's life. He became a Christ follower. And since then, he's invested his life in other guys do exactly that same thing. Start to get into a John study. Start to meet Jesus. And what I love about that picture is that the person who invited him to that John study is kind of like the star was for these wise men. Something that God put in their life. Something that God put in Scott's life. Maybe you can think of something God did in your life that made you say, I want to investigate further. I want to know more. That is extraordinary. If that is true, then I want to know how and I want to know why. And maybe even as you hear a story like that, you think about how you might be a star in somebody else's life. Something that God has dropped into their laps that says, hey, you might want to take a look at this. There might be something there for you. Because we begin to see how the wise men respond that way, but we're also going to see this other guy, Herod. And his response is pretty different. In verse 3 it says, when Herod the king heard this, that a king was being born. So when the king heard, there's a new king you can imagine, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Because as we'll see in the, in the next week, if Herod is not happy, nobody is happy. And it's not just that they're not happy. Like, people are going to pay for Herod feeling troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that should sound familiar. Because that is a summary of Micah 5, 2 through 5, that we started with at the beginning. So, so think about what this means. These guys show up and they tell Herod, we saw a star and it's pointing to a king. And Herod could say, yeah, we get all the crazies in here. Thank you for your time. Everybody wants to talk to the king, right? But actually he believes them. Because they told him about the star, he goes hunting for ancient prophecies. Oh no, the king, why does that got to happen now? Why does that got to happen while I'm king? Well, where is he supposed to be born? And he's troubled about it. And so it's interesting to me that actually Herod, his scribes, 
you know, his, his people are educated too. And yet they're going to have a very different response. And again, this always catches me because it's, it's so easy to think that 2,000 years ago, people didn't know what they were doing. And so no wonder they believed in like miracles and stuff like that. But we have microwaves now and cell phones and like they're not miracles, it's science and don't worry. Right? We think like, how, what did they know? They didn't even have TikTok, right? They were extremely brilliant people. There are still things that Herod built that we don't quite know how he pulled it off. We only have conjecture. And one of my favorites of those that I actually got to see when I was in uh, Jerusalem a couple years ago with my wife, we were traveling from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean coast, and you pass this massive aqueduct. It goes for miles. So this is here because Herod built a city that we now call Caesarea Maritime. And when he built the city, he built it right on the sea, great beachfront property. The sand is beautiful, but there's no fresh water. So they build an aqueduct from seven kilometers away, a little over four and a half miles, to bring fresh water all the way to Caesarea. Now, aqueducts were not a new thing, but here's what's amazing about this. Over the course of that entire seven kilometers, the grade is 0.05%. It drops like a tenth or a hundredth of a meter per kilometer. Slowly, slowly, so that the water never pools, never spills, but just carries fresh water all that distance so that Caesarea became a massive city in the Roman Empire. And so driving past this thing, like it's, it's shocking to think of how you do that without modern tools. How when you get to the sea, he's building supports for his city by pouring concrete underwater. Like I know we've figured that out, but how did they do that? Like Herod was a brilliant architect and builder. In fact, this thing was so effective that it wasn't just used during Herod's life, but for 1,200 years afterward, 12 more centuries this was the best way to get fresh water to Caesarea Maritime. Now, I share that with you because I want you to understand that we have quite an interesting tension between Herod and the wise men. It is not as if one of them's kind of into spiritual things and they're a little bit weird and they come from the east. And one of them's like an intelligent Greco-Roman, you know, that's kind of like, like we're in America. Like, we, we appreciate master's degrees and doctorates and they're actually very similar highly educated, highly intelligent, and they actually have the same information. Because look what happens in verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring, him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And I wonder if he was like twitching, like could they just tell right away? Because we find out later they needed to be warned not to go back to him. And I know it's not a spoiler to you guys that like Herod is the bad guy in the story. Like he's one of our all-time classic bad guys, right? But what I want you to notice in this moment is that they had the same evidence. A star and a prophecy. And both the wise men and Herod believed them. Because he believed them about the star, he went and found the prophecy. Because he believed the prophecy, he sends them to Bethlehem and says, let me know when you find him. He believes the star is pointing to the king and that the prophecy is true and that thing that is challenging him is in Bethlehem right now. So you're telling me that even if you give somebody all of the evidence that prophecy is real, they can still take it the opposite direction. Right? Herod and the wise men are going to have very different responses. Now why would that be for Herod? 
Because for Herod, if this is true, this is going to cost him big time. If King Herod, who's really more like a governor and whose kingship was bought for him by his uncle, who was friends with Julius Caesar, which that's what makes you the favorite uncle, so if anybody's wondering how to do that, buy your, buy your nephew a kingship. Right? If it's true that the king with the right to the throne was just born, then Herod's life is about to change. And friends, I think that this is what stops a lot of us cold in our tracks, either investigating Christ for the first time or even as a Christ follower. About digging deeper is we're afraid that if I really listen when I pray, if I really turn one more page, what is Jesus going to say and how is that going to change my life? Because I'm not sure I want that. And I just say that having felt it myself, you know, where it's like, oh man, I'm pretty sure the next page is the one that says, oh shoot, forgive your enemies. I was hoping it wouldn't be in there this time, right? Like it's going to cost me something. It's going to challenge us. It's going to change our lives. But let me encourage you, along with Matthew, don't be afraid to let Jesus change your life. Right? Most of the time we sing that, we're like, he changed my life. He set me free, like love and joy and peace. And then you come to Jesus and he says, yes, love and joy and peace. And let me tell you, part of that peace, forgive your enemy. I know what they did. Forgive them. Hey, part of that joy, we're going to work on your anger together. And your self-control. I'd like to talk to you about your lust, some of your language, the gossip, those things you've been watching. And that's where we start to feel like, well, I'm actually busy this week, Jesus, but thank you for your time. <laughs> and I've got a buddy who, uh, just, just to give you kind of a sense of this, he's a guy that, you know, grew up in a home that was going to church, and so he knows all about God, he knows all about Jesus. And as he got older, you know, he, and now he started his own family, he doesn't take him to church. He doesn't spend time in, in the Bible. He doesn't spend time in prayer. And so just as a friend, you know, when we have these spiritual conversations, because I don't, I don't say that to pick on him, but just to kind of paint the picture, as we have these spiritual conversations, and I'll say, hey, man, I think you'd really enjoy something like this. You know, I think you'd really, like, I, I know that it can feel like homework at first, but if you just kind of commit to it and, and getting into the word, like, there's treasure in there like you never knew. And his response basically comes back to the effect of, hey, man, I believe all the things, leave me alone. Guys, you will not find that in the Bible. So I know there are verses that say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we're using believe in kind of a different way here, right? Because you never see Jesus say, did you know that I left the throne of heaven because I love you so much that I would take on human flesh, I would deal with pain, I would experience temptation and betrayal, and I hung on a cross and bled and died and rose again because I love you. Do you believe me? Yeah, I believe you. Is there anything else? No, that was it. I just, you know, just want to make sure you knew. Um, see you when you get to heaven? Okay, great. Right, you never see that picture of Jesus in here. Right? Because he loves us, he wants to teach us. He commands us to obey because he wants us to have what is best. That the same God who makes all those predictions and prophecies and promises... That Jesus would come, not just to show off and say, do you know I can do miracles? But to die for everything you've ever done wrong and everything I've ever done wrong so that we can live with him forever. He doesn't want to wait till you get to heaven and see if you remember him. He wants to live life with us now. 
teach us to grow. And change can be hard, and it can be costly. But I'm telling you, every single time that I've faced something that I'm like, oh, Jesus, you can't mean that. I better ask some trusted counselors. And they're pointing me to scripture, and it's like, oh, man. Okay. Okay, let's do it. I always come out the other side of that like, you were right again, Jesus. And then I stand here singing these songs and thinking of those things like, yes, chains are gone and he loves me and there is joy in the house of the Lord because of the things that he will do in our lives. You see, Herod could not get past that. Herod believed, so he wanted Jesus to leave him alone. Yeah, the star was real and he's in Bethlehem. We'll see next week. I mean, he goes the ultimate extreme. He's like, well, then we got to kill him. We got to stop him before he tries to change something. But the wise men are going to have a different response. Check out verse 9. When they heard the king, that being Herod, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, that sounds a little bit different than Herod, doesn't it? And, and I love that this picture starts with joy. When they saw that the star had stopped for all of this journey they'd been on, they'd been to Jerusalem, they're talking to the king, and they get to Bethlehem, and when it stops, it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. That's encouraging to me because that, that's a reminder that I need. Because there's a lot of the times in my walk with Christ, and maybe you feel this, like, I want to be faithful, I want to be dutiful, I want to be disciplined, I want to get up, I want to read my Bible and pray, and I'm going to try to do that every day because I know it makes a difference. And sometimes you read it, and, and it just feels dry. You know, sometimes you try to talk to them, and it feels like I just rattled off a bunch of stuff that, I don't know, there's probably a bunch, why did I rattle that stuff instead of this stuff? I don't know, but I got a meeting in like 15 minutes, so at least I did the thing, right? Right, God? God? Hello? So I'm probably the only one that ever feels that way. But in case you feel that way, one of the things that encourages me about this moment is that in some sense they are doing things that are very religious, right? They come to God and they give out of their own treasure. Hey, I do that too. Maybe you do that too. But I look at my own finances and I say, God has been so good to me, how do I give back to him? It also says they fell down and worshipped. Well, worship is not only through music, but music is one of the awesome ways to worship. You know, when you come into this room and you just, you know, you feel the waves of sound from the instruments coming over you and you raise your voice to the same God with other people who love him too. Ah, oh, what a great way to show him how much we love him. And so in some sense, it's like, yeah, I do that religiously every week. <laughs> and yet theirs isn't religious like you would think of it. They're not checking boxes. They're not like, ugh, all right, if he is a king, I guess we better bring some gifts. I was going to use this gold, but here you go, baby Jesus. Hope you can make the most of that. Right? They're joyfully doing it. They're excited to do it. Because all the way to the moment of worship and giving, they've been thinking about how amazing it is that the king is right here. And so I found that one of the best things for me, when I'm kind of in that space where it's like, I'm trying to pray, but your brain's rattling on a thousand other things, and she's like, dear Lord, 
Um, let's see, so 9.15 and then 10.30 and then, oh, I mean, sorry, what I meant to say was, dear Lord, thank you for uh, my family, um, which reminds me because the boys have basketball at 7.30, I think, and then, if, so if I got to get, oh, uh, sorry, Lord, what I meant was, dear Lord, thank you for my family and my house, <laughs> you know, it's like you, you keep trying to get back to it. One of the best things for me is to turn on worship music, like using, uh, you know, one of the sets that our worship team has on the app or on the website, and just let it play a few songs force myself to look at those lyrics and sing out loud. Because looking, listening, and singing keeps my brain busy enough. It can't get off on this other stuff. And by about halfway through the song, oh my goodness, he is my king. He does forgive me. He does love me. I love you too. Hey, it's nice to see you again, God. I know you were here the whole time, but I was having trouble focusing. You know, that's the moment that they're having. They've been so laser focused on who he is, thinking about him leading up to this moment, that when they get there, It is just simply joy. And so they offer him these gifts of gold, symbolic of the fact that he is their king. But also very practical because we know that Joseph and Mary were not very well off. And they could use that as they start their new life with a new baby. They bring him frankincense. An incense that would be used in the priesthood. Symbolic of how Jesus is not only our king, but he's also our high priest who goes before God on our behalf to bring us forgiveness. And they also bring him myrrh. Now myrrh was an anointing oil that they would put on the bodies of the dead. And we don't know how much the wise men knew. It may be that there was more that God revealed to them. Matthew doesn't tell us. But how fitting that they symbolize that he is our king and our priest who would die. That the God from everlasting to everlasting would die so that we could have eternal life. That one day his body would be embalmed and anointed and buried. And that he would raise himself from the grave and give us new life. No wonder we worship him. No wonder we're filled with joy when we stop and meditate. Not just on the evidence, but on who Jesus is. And you know, as I've been uh, investigating this myself this week, I I came across a guy named Jay Warner Wallace. And he is a guy who uh, is a cold case detective. He wrote the book Cold Case Christianity. And as he wrote this book, he, he described how he was an atheist. He did not believe in God. He certainly did not believe in Jesus. But he heard that Jesus was the most influential person in history. Which, believe it or not, is not that hard to prove. Um, they do these studies every once in a while where you measure people's mind share. Like, what are they thinking about all the time? And who are the people that influence them the most? And, like, nobody even comes close to Jesus. Like, people are constantly thinking about Jesus and making decisions based on things Jesus has taught. So he went into this like, okay, well that part's obvious, but why? Like how could so many people for so many years be so duped over this Jesus thing? So he took his education, his expertise, his, his cold case detective skills, and went into checking the evidence for Christianity. And so you, you can find great interviews with him online um, that, are, that are basically the same as the content of the book where he gives dozens of different examples of this. Uh, I want to give you just a couple. Because one of the things that he talks about is the chain of evidence. 
and how with something like the New Testament, if the miracles, the resurrection were fake, you would expect that over time you would add more and more myth to the story. As people who weren't there or didn't know him start to talk about other magical things that Jesus did. Only what you find is that in the oldest manuscripts, which were from like the first generation, while people who witnessed it were still alive, and if it didn't happen, they would just throw it out, the oldest manuscripts still match what we have today. It hasn't changed. You have a chain of evidence 2,000 years old and more that shows nobody's changed their story. That holds up in a court of law. One of the others that I found most compelling is that he says that when he's in court, if he presents a piece of evidence that his opposition doesn't feel good about, they're not sure that should be counted. He never hesitates to just say, then throw it out. My case is so airtight. I have so much evidence. I don't even need that piece. You can throw it out. And so one of the things he says about the New Testament is that if you actually threw out every other verse in the New Testament, keep this one, throw out that one, keep this one, throw out that one, Relax, we're not throwing out the New Testament. <laughs> Don't do that. But he says, even if you did, with what's left, we would still know everything we know about Jesus, about his miracles, about why he came, about what he did, about his resurrection. So even if you wanted to try to say, but, have, but aren't there little things that's like it's a little bit different in this manuscript? And that, even if you threw out half of it, you would still know everything we know about Jesus. And so for him, he became convinced that Jesus really did what he says, that the resurrection was real. But the thing I love most about his story is that he says that it didn't change him because of the evidence. What changed him was not the evidence or the fact that it was true. What changed him was when he started a relationship with the one that the evidence pointed to. When he learned how to enjoy worshiping King Jesus. That's what the wise men learned. That's what Matthew is laying before us. And so I think the key takeaway, I, I would say, I think this is from Matthew, but I think this is just what Jesus wants for us. Investigate and enjoy. Investigate and enjoy Jesus. I mean, you think about all the pieces that God had laid out so that people could follow the trail and know that it was true and look at the evidence. But the point was not to say, huh, I guess it is true. Pass a test, you know, true or false. Uh, Jesus is king, true. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, true. Herod's a good dude, false. Okay, I think I got it all, right? But to enjoy a relationship with the God who was born, to live the perfect life, to die for us, to be our king. And so as you think about how you investigate, you know, maybe this is a season where you feel like God has put something in your life that is saying, go deeper, dig deeper, read more, meet me in these pages, let me teach you, let me show you. Hey, be a wise woman, be a wise man. Investigate it, put the time in and see what joy it might lead you to. And maybe this is a season where there's somebody in your life that you can be that star to them. You know, that maybe God is initiating with them through you. Just like whoever told J. Warner Wallace how impactful Jesus was. Just like that guy that invited Scott to check out a Bible study. Maybe there's someone in your life that God's encouraging you, hey, 
shine for them that they might want to go and take a look at this. Maybe you just invite them to read it with you. In fact, this is a big part of what we're trying to do at Horizon is give people a chance to investigate and enjoy together. And so one of the things that, that might even help you with this is every week we are putting out a pathway guide. So if you didn't know about this, if you're here in person and you got a program on the way in, it's in there. You have one right now. It's got the, the message notes are on one side, but the other side is a pathway guide full of questions to help you really wrestle with deeper understanding and application of these topics that we teach on every weekend. But not only that, there's also a pathway video that Chad or myself or sometimes some of our friends film on Sunday afternoon. Same thing, just two to three minutes. It's not as long as I've been doing right now. Just two or three minutes to help you really engage the application part of what we've learned. And then we also have pathway groups because one of the best ways to investigate, remember that word magoi was plural? This wasn't just one dude. He's got some of his friends going to investigate Jesus together. And so maybe you'd like to jump into a group that's using the pathway every week. Um, I'd love that because then by just reading the passage and listening to the message, it's like my homework for group is done. I just show up and talk with the guys. And so if you jump on the groups page on our website, there's a contact there for Kelly Grosser uh, to get connected with women's groups, for me to get connected with guys' groups. So you can even just you know, run up here afterwards and we can talk. Uh, but I would love to help you get connected with that. Or you may even just take that with a friend and say, hey, let's investigate together. I'd love to pray for you. Can we just pray right now? Lord, thank you so much that you do initiate with us. Lord, that just the fact that, like, if I'm sitting here and I'm not sure you've initiated with me, I'm sitting here, which means you have. God, that every one of us, you have dropped something into our life, into our laps to say, hey, I'm in here. I'm here. Come and check me out. And so I pray that you would give us the courage, like the wise men, to investigate further, to learn who you are, and to just enjoy you the way that you enjoy us. And Jesus, we will ask that in your name and thank you for it. Amen.